Hello and welcome to the Unheard Weekly Podcast with me, Aisha Hazarika. This is the podcast where we ask our guests to pick stories which they think are really important but um, haven't really had a fair hearing in other parts of the press. Uh, We also do uh, Heroes and Villains of the Week as well. So I'm delighted to be joined by uh, two fantastic guests this week. We have Tom Shivers, who's an Unheard contributor and author of the forthcoming book, The Rationalists, The Geeks Who Want to Save the World. Sounds fascinating, and we're going to hear a wee bit more about that in a bit. And we have Jane Merrick, who is um, a very prolific political commentator, and what a week it has been in politics. Tom, we're going to start with you. What is your underreported story of the week? Okay, so um, somewhat egotistically, I've chosen a piece I wrote um, (laughs) (laughs) for Unheard. Um, uh, So it's about... it's about the the risk of an AI apocalypse, which I think is something we should be talking about a little bit more, or at least a little bit less quick to dismiss as a ridiculous idea. The idea that um, artificial intelligence could uh, accidentally kill everybody. And, and Tom, how like give us some examples of like how you think this power could be used in a malign way? Well, it's, that's the interesting thing. It's not about malignity. It's not about th- this this being used as. Uh, um, to, for evil ends, although of course it could be, um, and it's not about AI becoming, you know, uh, conscious or re- rebelling against its uh, masters or any of these things. The the worry that a certain group of people, um, quite influential and serious group of people, including people at you know, Google DeepMind and things, they worry about what they worry is that AI will become competent, that it'll become extremely good at what it does, and if you give, but then if you give it some task, some apparently simple and innocuous seeming task then fulfilling that task could have catastrophic unforeseen consequences. Um, so, I mean, the example I often think, sort of simple example I always often think of is actually really familiar to all of us, especially those who are parents in the education system, when they try and, when someone tries to set a metric for something to do, they, what often happens is instead of actually, you know, say you want to get people to win, get achieve well on test scores, then teachers teach to the test rather than doing the thing that you want to do, which is improve education and uh, therefore... Broaden their mind. And... Yes, exactly. And, and then hopefully that will push up the test scores. And that is exactly the sort of thing that they that the these people worry about in AI. If you say to um, an AI something like, stop there being any cancer in the world, it looks at it and thinks, well, I could do that by uh, spending loads and loads of time researching uh, you know, uh, human biology, or I could just hack into a nuclear weapons system and blow everybody up, and then there's no cancer. Um, Slightly worrying. Yeah. So, I mean, it's 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 that as a you know that sort of thing. It's the idea that uh, we as humans, when we are given a task, we know that there are things around the task that are also important. So, you know, if you if you're if someone says um, fill that bucket with water we'd know just fill it up to the top and stop and not you know, we're really worried about flooding flooding the room or anything like that whereas an ai has just got that task and we'll look for the simplest and most efficient way to do it unless we're very careful about instilling those ais with human values and human sort of ways of thinking then it can un- go really bad in very strange ways but if we instill judgment and values and these intrinsically human qualities and characteristics and personalities mm. in the in the AI so it, it knows the limits and it can look at things in the round. Isn't there isn't that opening up the scope for bad things and malign things to happen as well? I, I'm sure it is. Well the the I the idea that we're then creating conscious things that are our sort of slaves. I mean yes. 
Yes, I would. I would probably say that's a downstream problem from the one of stopping them killing us all. Um, you know, so I would say. <laughs> Tom, I'd, you've I'd, not reassured <laughs> me at all. <laughs> I, I would, I, but but I absolutely, if you create some conscious thing that is then uh, an unwilling slave forced to to do it, then yes, I'd say that is a pretty negative thing as well. There may be there may be ways around it. You could make it make it that it really cares very deeply about doing the thing you want it to do, and that is all it cares about. And then is that negative? I, you know, the, you, it gets complex. It does because it becomes subjective and yeah. it becomes wh- whose values are the right values. Exactly. Which is... Whereas I feel stopping them from killing everyone, I feel like we, something we can get on, all get on board with. You, <laughs> you know. would hope so. <laughs> yes, you would yeah. think so. I think, Jane, I think what this... do you what do you think about well, all of this? I think this shows actually there's a reason why I don't read these articles too closely because I'm always <laughs> terrified by them. But do you think that we're kind of using the wrong phraseology here, artificial intelligence, and it should be something like artificial competence? Because you said earlier that it was a bit like sort of people are focusing on whether you can get consciousness or not, and that's mm. a sort of further down the line, and trying to prove whether robots can ever be conscious or emotional, when actually what they should have been, maybe they are, focusing on more sort of urgently is the fact that they could wipe us all out. Yeah, well, so uh, absolutely. The, the word artificial intelligence is it's sort of loaded, or the phrase artificial intelligence is sort of loaded because we think of human intelligence where the only intelligences, general intelligences that we really are aware of, or, or that we are aware of at all, really. And um, what a lot of people describe it is op- instead of using art- intelligence, they use it as optimization power. So it's for optimizing the universe in the way, in a, it give, into a certain way. So you... Uh, for like Deep Blue, the the chess um, computer that beat Kasparov, you could describe as optimizing the universe into a, world, a universe in which it has won chess yes. games, and yes. uh, you know, and, and you can then, and then you get out, they get away from a lot of the sort of philosophical questions about what is intelligence, or you know, mm. is can machines be conscious, and all these things, which are kind of seem to me secondary of secondary importance to exactly. is it really good at what it does? Yeah, and actually, the, the debate has always been about consciousness, hasn't mm. it? And I think it's been slightly misleading because actually. The, the, the argument that you're putting across is probably more pertinent and more yeah. urgent. So, Tom, what you've um, outlined to me sounds quite alarming, but of course, we, we certainly worship at the altar of AI at the moment. Um, what what do the sort of experts that you work alongside think? Do they think that this is a real problem? So, I should say, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm uh, I'm a journalist and I'm just a guy who listens to clever people and writes down what they say. But yes, I, I've 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 um, Sort of looked into it for a while, and there and there are if for, for my forthcoming book AI, uh, the, the rationalists AI and the geeks who want to save the world. Um, but there does seem to me that so they've done there's a couple of surveys of AI researchers, um, and they seem to think on average that that, that something like intelligence, sort of a, a super intelligent form of computer, will arrive in the next fifty to hundred years, so the lifetime of my children, um, and that there's the average guess is about a one in five chance, I think it's sort of 17, 18% chance of what they described as very bad brackets, existential catastrophe outcomes. Uh, so which that which is the extinction of the human race. And now- It's pretty bad. Yeah, so, and you know, there's, and, and people, there, there, there's a department at Oxford University and MIT set up fairly explicitly to worry about this that stuff. Google DeepMind, um, their, their founders, Shane Legg and uh, Demis Asabis, have both expressed concern about it and have coll- collaborated on research into reducing this sort of risk. So I think, I mean, even if you say, which I think 
you can say that you know these surveys are probably overestimate you know overestimating the uh, the, the percentage and also that pe- people who work in the field are over- overestimating the risk themselves. Even if you say they've got it wildly wrong and say they're like twenty times more confident that in this thing than is actually true, there's still a one percent chance of it literally killing everybody. And we don't you know it's about one percent chance. Did that happen before Brexit? <laughs> Not the right things are going now. Um, so, you know, we, we, there's about a 1% chance of any one of us dying in a motor accident in our lifetime. We don't think that 1% risks are ridiculous things to worry about. I am constantly petrified of my children going anywhere near roads. So I, I think that even so if... you think this is a genuine thing that we should... And, and let me ask you this. Is the government talking about this? Um, is the government worried about this? So, is the government even conscious about this? <laughs> well, that's an excellent question that I should probably have been able to answer. Um, the The... They they have they did do a um there was a report in two thousand and fourteen into existential risks uh like things that could wipe out everything and uh that was sponsored by the Home Office I think um and carried out by a philosopher I've spoken to at Oxford University who's really into all, interested in all this sort of stuff and that did put as the top two likely risks were um, AI or a bioengineered pandemic um so uh and. So though, so they, on the floor they, 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 yeah, you're doing some amazing faces, there. <laughs> <laughs> um, which works really well for a podcast. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I think they are aware of it. I think, as we'll probably talk about later, they've got other things on their plate at the moment. You know, so it's so it's not it's not that they're unaware of it, but also, I feel like this is the sort of thing that, that the work that can be done now about design, trying to design a. Um, the sort of safety mechanisms, the sort of ways that you can make an AI safe. It's still at quite early stage, sort of to do with maths and philosophy and uh, really sort of early stage stuff. So I, I think there there is funding going on from universities and things. There's uh, sort of philanthropic funding, and there's I I've tried I was trying I was trying to work out the exact figure for for my book, but I, th- I think the global spend on this AI safety stuff is probably less than 100 million a year, which is not a small amount of money. It's not a huge amount of money. I'm not saying it needs to be loads more. I'm just saying we need to stop laughing about it and printing every uh, story with a big picture of the Terminator. Fantastic. Well, look, Tom, thank you for raising um, such an important story and a very alarming story, uh, <laughs> the extension of the human race. Um, but, uh, Jane, we're going to come to your underreported story. We, we might be bringing on the end of our own extinction anyway with our own lifestyles. Well, actually, I mean, that's a, a, a really good question. I mean, sort of Tom is talking about, not, you know, not enough alarm. This is a subject where I think we've had too much alarm, which is about the obesity crisis. And I'm not denying that the figures for obesity are alarming, especially among children, and that it's a serious problem. But I think we're sort of, with the government and, and everyone else is looking at it in the wrong way. So there's a, a story um, yesterday that Ofsted is saying that schools alone can't solve the obesity crisis and that they're being that teachers are being asked to do so much. And in fact, dovetailing into that Damien Hines the education secretary has got some new guidelines about basically public health messaging about screen time in schools but also about teachers sort of telling kids not to eat eat too many biscuits I mean I've got an eight-year-old daughter who probably has maybe one two biscuit too many but she's fine because she does a lot of exercise and I think the sort of the way that we need to look at this is to stop telling kids they can't eat biscuits or too much sugar you're, you're always going to sort of come across a sort of a brick wall there, but actually to encourage more exercise. And there are plenty of things that the government could be doing, like funding more school sport, funding community sports so that you can send in community groups, amazing, fantastic sports clubs that can go into schools and provide after school um, care, which would solve another problem, which is childcare. And I think we've become so obsessed with sugar being the bad 
unhealthy food. Like in the 80s, we were obsessed with fat being un- unhealthy. And that obsession with, with fat became so extreme that artificial sweeteners were put into food and sort of in, in, in processed food. And I, I would say actually processed food is more dangerous mm. than having a really good slice of Victoria sponge cake that you've made yourself using sugar, refined sugar, but still that's more healthy. And we've become so obsessed that sort of anecdotally, but they're still alarming, is that hosp- there are some hospitals are talking about taking junk food, vending machines out of hospitals. Um, there are personal trainers I've heard about who tell their clients to stop eating fruit because it c- c- contains sugar. There was a BBC programme on last month talking about the truth about carbs and setting out potatoes and chips and bagels on a table and saying, look how much sugar this produces, which is ridiculous because the body converts the starch in these foods to sugar and that's how we get energy and we've become so obsessed and I'm worried that it's kind of seeping into our schools and it's going to have the opposite effect is that you're making things taboo for kids and they're just going to want it more. So I mean it's it's a it's such a raging um debate and actually in politics recently you might remember Tom Watson the deputy leader of the Labour Party being a very overweight man he has shed an enormous amount of weight kind of about sort of six stone or something Mm, like that. And he's done it by cutting out sugar. Mm. He's on a completely sort of low sugar, no sugar diet. And it's interesting because a lot of, um, I mean, I have a, I had a personal trainer. Um, they basically sacked me because I was just so (laughs) useless to train, but they were, she actually said to me, look, the exercise and the diet, the exercise is very important. It's good for your body and things. But if you really, really want to sort of improve your health, it is diet. Like diet is the, the and nutrition is the crucial thing. Um, and it, it does seem to be, um, there does seem to be a, a real issue about sugar at the moment. I mean, on a, on a on another health note, I mean, I sort of agree with you that perhaps it's gone too far. But I think our childhood and our general obesity epidemic is getting out of hand. I mean, and it's purely anecdotal, but my brother is an orthopaedic surgeon up in Scotland. And one of the most popular operations, or I say popular, most frequent operations he's doing is amputating people's feet because diabetes is so high. Mm. And that's becoming not just older people, that's younger people as well. And that is all connected to to, to, to sugar. But... You're right. I mean, these these things do, you know, it was fat was the enemy. Mm. Now sugar's the enemy. I mean, Tom, what are we all getting to? So I'm, I'm extremely conflicted about all of this. Um, I, so, I mean, I agree with you. There's, there's this sort of real highlighting of sugar. And there's also, I mean, it's absolutely, it's true. This, it can't be schools that do it. I, but I have a, I'll make a prediction here now. And next, if I'm next on this podcast in, I don't know, a year's time or something like that, you... I bet you Tom Watson puts that weight back on. Ah. Okay. Mm. Um, and the reason is, I was uh, basically, the, the, as far as I, I, I sort of half understood the science, my half understood grasp of the science of obesity and sort of and weight gain, is that our bodies defend a set weight, a certain set level of fat in our bodies. So, like, if you if you have if you gain weight and there's more fat in your body than you, your body expects, it will get. Um, less hungry and more active, and we'll put and try and shed that weight. And if you get le- if you drop weight, it will get more hungry and get less active. You'll become it'll go into basically starvation mode and try and keep 
your um, the fat you've got and not make you, not run around much, but also try and get you to eat as much as it can. That's my body's in that yeah. state. Well, yeah. exactly. Yeah, aren't, aren't, <laughs> All aren't, the time. aren't we all? Yeah. So, so I mean, and and you can you can adjust that set point by because it can, but it's easier to go up than it is to go down. If you if you there are certain foods that are quite like addictive, and you'll eat them even when you're not hungry, and they'll so you'll so you'll eat them against this sort of defensive defensive set point. Junk food, basically, not just sugar, but mm. things like pizza, crisps. Um, and so it is very easy. And what this, this the sort of rise of foods like that seems to have tied in with the obesity crisis that's since sort of uh, late seventies, early eighties. So, I, uh, I my, so it, 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 I, I, when you start doing things like dieting, what you're doing is basically starving yourself. You are, and your body will think, "I'm starving, I'm starving." You'll be on, constantly hungry, and you'll be your metabolism will slow down so that you can't do so much. Well, it won't be really hard to exercise and things. And so you're fighting this. Willpower will not be enough in that sort of situation. So I absolutely agree that schools can't solve the obesity crisis. I don't think parents can solve the obesity crisis. I think the only thing that could save the obesity, solve the obesity crisis um, is a pretty illiberal program of high taxes or, and restrictions on certain junk foods. And, and wouldn't that be seen as a tax on the poor? It would exactly be mm. a tax on the poor. And so, I mean, and, and maybe it's the right thing to do, but you have to, like, face these trade-offs realistically. If if we want, you know, we high taxes on cigarettes were a tax on the poor. I'm not saying... And that, also banning cigarette smoking. Yeah, in various places. In various places and make it... But, Jane, in terms of, like, the, the state's intervention, I mean, you obviously think that... It's not the job of the school. But, I mean, what do you think about, for example, that, I mean, Sadiq Khan got a bit of flack. I think he did the right thing. There was something about saying, look, chicken shops and fast food shops should not be opening up near schools mm. because, you know, the kids are going straight to them after school and, you know, having their lunch and then having chicken and chips at sort of, you know, four o'clock. But what do you think of that? Do you think that's too nanny state? I think it is, actually. And I think also taxing as well. I mean, the sort of, you know, George Orwell's Rosa Wigan Pier talked about the sort of the... the working classes need something a bit tasty. And I just don't think it's for the government or any of us to tell people that they can't have, you know, biscuits or whatever. Did you think the smoking stuff was, was also too much? Banning um, smoking. It's interesting, actually, because I used to be a smoker and I stopped about 10 years ago. And I don't know whether that's because of the ban on, mm. on smoking. But, I mean, smoking cigarettes, I think, is... You know, nicotine is far more damaging than occasional. I mean, this is about... It's about everything in moderation. And having one cigarette a day is more damaging than having... You know, one biscuit a day. But what about so you, if people can't it control about extremes. it? What if people can't control it? Because, you know, a lot of people are... I mean, we are getting fatter as a nation and our kids mm. are getting fatter. Um, there's no doubt about that. Yeah. Um, I'm, not dis I'm not disagreeing with that and I'm not saying it's a huge problem. But I think by sort of having a very nanny state attitude about you can't do this, you can't have this, you, you, sh you should... Everything should be taxed. Actually, the government wants to spend its money wisely on this, then they should promote, as I said earlier, promote school sport and activity. And it doesn't have to be competitive sport, but it's interesting that private schools produce just disproportionately amounts amounts of um, the top athletes than, than state schools. So private schools, I think, should be, in, in order to sort of satisfy their charitable status, they should be opening up their sports facilities to state schools nearby and to just have it as a kind of this should be I mean Michael Gove tried to have a go anyway well, they should do it anyway, that anyway. That I know and by the way I would exactly. say to that as well there are arts facilities as well because yes. their arts and music and drama facilities are amazing as well they should be opening that up absolutely and I think it's but it's just not become school sport is sort of not seen as a as a priority as it should be. So I have a con I, my I, I, I actually agree with all of these things as good things to do I don't think I, I again anecdotal but 
so I've got a little run. I've got a running app, you know, Strava. Um, mm. And I, I try Other and running run. apps are available. Yes, thank you. Yeah. And I, I, try, I try and run a couple of times a week. Um, and I do, I've got this little loop up, up a hill and through the down. And, and it, it's about 3.6 miles. And it, I'm, I'm not super fit. And it, I run it as fast as I can. And I get absolutely shattered. And I come back. And I'm like leaning on my, um, you know, the, the porch door going, <laughs> until my son comes and opens the door and lets me in. And, anyway, um, and then I look at the app and it says you spent about 500 calories. Mm. That's two, ba- it's two plain bagels with nothing on. You know, it's so you can eat that, you can eat that in a minute. You can but eat comparing, the- but comparing those calories like for like is 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 not is misleading. If you if you if you have active children who are active every day, whatever mm. they're doing, I mean, they don't have to be doing, you know, hardcore tennis every day. But sort of bench ball is really popular in primary schools, and. Um, yeah, I mean, actually, I, you know, I, I used to have one of those wristbands and my goal was 10,000 steps a day. Mm. And I found I every day, and if I never, if I didn't meet the goal, I felt terrible. I felt like a failure because mm. I didn't meet it. And often I wouldn't be able to meet it because I'd be stuck at, on my, at my desk all day. So I think the sort of, you, we have to balance the kind of the, the sort of negative side of exercise and, and, and sort of punishing side of exercise mm. with actually, it's a positive thing. We should be celebrating it. And I think... You need education and exercise, and that starts from a really young age. And actually, you should, of course, you should have education about food as well. And I'm not saying that we should all sort of start promoting biscuits in school. I mean, mm. you know, having cake sales every day or every week in school. But but it's just about balance. And I think with, with the sugar idea, we've become obsessed with unhealthy food and bad food mm. when actually we should be focusing on what is an unhealthy diet and what is a bad diet instead and rather than obsessing about one food group well jane thank you so much for for highlighting the great sugar debate and we i'm not going to tell tom watson <laughs> about your prediction but let's just he monitor motivated yeah, yeah. Let, let's let's keep him kind of if you're listening tom i have every faith that you are gonna you know <laughs> you're my, you're my thin inspiration yeah continue <laughs> so we're now going to move on to um, my favorite section of the show heroes and villains of the week so um Jane, I'm going to start with you. Your hero of the week. Yes, it's Margaret Hodge, who, um, you know, she, two nights ago, sort of after the Brexit vote, incredibly sort of, um, you know, high emotion, emotion running high, a very charged atmosphere, and it's behind the Speaker's chair. And um, she laid into Jeremy Corbyn and called him an an anti-Semite and a racist. and, And it was reported that she'd said the F word as well, but then she sort of retracted that, but she didn't retract the other two. And I think actually... And do you want to just explain to our viewers like, um, why this row came about? Yeah, so the the sort of the the issue has been um, the Labour's NEC, the ruling executive committee, has been defining, coming up with its own definition of anti-Semitism. And it's avoided the, the internationally recognised um, definition of anti-Semitism. And it's excluded um, a number of points which talk about the state of Israel and the existence of the state of Israel. And also one of the most, you know, one of the key anti-Semitic tropes that actually Luciana Berger went to court over and someone was jailed over was questioning loyalty yeah. to to Britain versus Israel. And that's been kept out of Labour's definition. And it's it's outrageous. I mean, just, just for complete accuracy, the Labour Party have said that, and what the NEC members have said, that the, the case isn't closed on this, that they're mm. actually going to do more consultation but it has gone down absolutely catastrophically with the Jewish community and I believe the chief rabbi has intervened and and the people absolutely because the CPS uses this definition lots of other uh, Jewish leading organizations government departments use this definition so it's created a huge stink 
It's, and it's also against the backdrop of the sort of years, un, you know, the years under Jeremy Corbyn, actually, where anti-Semitism has sort of almost been qualified all the time. And it's this constant qualification. And I think people like Margaret Hodge have just had enough. And she, and she you know, when she, sna- she, she snapped on Tuesday night, but completely understandably, because she's so angry, and a lot of people are angry about this. You know, I've voted Labour all my life. And I, this does not, you know, Labour, I voted Labour because they're an anti-racist party. They are for social justice, and this flies in the face of everything, actually, that they stand for. So I think she is my hero because she's, you know, she's fought the BNP in her own constituency. She's took on, you know, so many racists and, and anti-Semites in her, in her in her life. And it's also worth saying that she lost um, a lot of members of her family in the Holocaust. And in fact, one of the things she says is she's only here because her parents were on holiday at the time and the war broke out. Yes, absolutely. And... You know, rather than sort of the, the reaction to this from Labour was, was was rather than sort of, OK, well, we understand, let's have Margaret in to talk about this and to talk about your concerns. They're threatening or they're taking disciplinary action against her. And it's just absurd. And it's this kind of mad state in which the Labour Party find it, finds itself in. I just think it's so depressing. And so actually for her to sort of to, to finally snap, actually, I think she's, you know, this will probably cause a lot of people to sort of say, yes, I'm with you, Margaret, rather than being with Jeremy. Do you think the party could split over this? You know, ask me about this six months ago or a year ago, I would have said there's no no way and there's no, like having an, an, the idea of a new party is fanciful. But actually, I think it's come to the point where people can't just sort of, I think if you're staying in the Labour Party, you're tolerating anti-Semitism. I think it's got that bad. I wonder, sorry, just to yeah. butt in, but I wonder also how much the, the divide in the Labour Party would break, you know, the ones who are anti this different definition of uh, anti-Semitism would also be on the Lexit Corbyn, um, you know, sort of uh, pro-Brexit side of yes. uh, and so, so that which where there's another big division. Absolutely. So you could easily That's imagine really this sort of sort of d- breaking down on the, on both of those lines at once. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of people politically homeless. I think at the moment there are. I mean, as somebody who is has been a very well, I worked in the Labour Party for ten years of my life, and obviously they've got very close connections. I mean, it, it is it is terrible. Um, and I think people are feeling very, very confused. I think whether people will leave or not is another is another question because I think that one of the mistakes that a lot of commentators, including myself, sort of make is that people think that people in the Labour Party will just... It's easy to leave a political mm. party. It's actually... It's very difficult. And I think for a lot of MPs, you know, you fight so hard to become an MP and you're not just there for yourself and you're not just there because of like one particular policy area. There's a great sort of tradition and history and heritage about being part of the, the Labour Party. So I think there's lots of people who will be thinking very, very deeply about what to do, but whether they'll walk or not. And the other thing I just want to say, I mean, I'm absolutely appalled by this. I'm very, very good friends with Luciana. In fact, I'm going to be hosting a big event um, on anti-Semitism for her and Ruth Smith soon. But the one thing I will just say is in the interest of, of balance, as somebody who's Muslim as well, I find it outrageous that nobody talks about the Islamophobia in the Conservative Party mm. as well. Because, you know, what is good for the goose should be good for the for the gander. And I'm the first person to say that I am absolutely disgraced by what the Labour Party has done over this. I see absolutely no... I can't fathom why they've had a problem with anti-Semitism and now they're trying to fix it, but they're fixing it in the worst way by mm. basically sticking two fingers up to the Jewish community. But I also would like to see 
um, as an underreported, as something that's not reported, the same amount of um, anger and concern for the Muslim community who are having a horrific time at the moment as well. I mean, the, the free Tommy Robinson yeah. march on Saturday was absolutely chilling. And no, you look at the things right. that are being posted willy-nilly on you know conservative um, you know social media and the Conservative Party is not doing anything about it. And I just feel that, you know, it's a, what a depressing state for, for British politics. It's, the sad thing is, though, I mean, I, sh- I don't know if this... I, is that you expect better from Labour? Yeah, They're the true. anti-racist mm. party, you it's know, and, and mm. I do expect, and I do think they are broadly better and on that front of things, you know, whereas I just... The, the sort of, you know, the total lack of surprise when uh, Zach Goldsmith's campaign to be for mayor was so unpleasantly dog-whistly, mm. just like... that's sort of what I expect, you know, whereas I, I do, I want I want Labour to be better. And I, I feel, like you say, I'm politically homeless mm. over Brexit and also to a large degree over this, because like, I don't know, I don't, where, where are the people who want the sort of just the, the sort of nice, decent things that I, that I feel like? You know, I yes, want well, we're in a very... De- now, I just want to come to you for Tom. So your villain of the week, we're now moving, I feel the, the mood is moving into areas of it. What, what is, who is your villain of the week? Well, I've sort of... Um, I've nicked this off Jane, but so it's it's Julian Smith who's the Tory chief whip, um, and uh, so this week there was a very tight vote on Brexit on trade trade affairs, and it was the customs customs union. union, yeah, and it was uh, it came down to three votes um, because of rebellions, and Julian Smith, the chief whip was somehow managed to get one of his MPs, Brandon Lewis, to vote when he was supposed to have been paired up with a, a Lib Dem MP, Joe Swinson, um, who was unable to uh, to vote because she was on maternity leave. And it was sort of it's this sort of basic idea of, of trust between the parties that they, you know I, I'm not going to vote when because there's someone on the other part other side who will. This is honor honor arrangement, and yeah. that and that seems to have broken down. Now they they said it was a mistake, and then it turned out in a Times article that uh, that. Uh, Julian Smith may have asked two other MPs to do exactly the same thing and break this sort of code and the, the, the also it's really obviously not a mistake because uh, Lewis voted on all the not tight votes and then didn't vote yeah. did vote on the two tight ones and then didn't vote any other so it's it just it was it's, it's shameless it's it is absolutely shameless and I think it's it's really surprised people because this peering system that you speak about it's a really fundamental part of how we do our British politics, particularly when the majorities are very slim. There was a play called This House, which was all about um, how tight the votes were in the 1970s and, and you know how important that sort of pairing system was. And when trust broke down, people were literally being sort of wheeled in, um, even if they were like, you know, on, on their deathbeds to vote. But also, I think there's a bigger issue with this as well. Theresa May self-declares as a feminist you know she she wears the t-shirt this is what a feminist looks like she unveiled the, the the statue of Millicent Fawcett not that long ago at Parliament Square and she's been very instrumental she's been very keen to get more women into into politics but what message does this send into politics mm. you're a woman you've just had a baby and we're going to do you in while you're at home with your baby we're going to deny you an absolute fundamental right to to have your vote because we're going to trick you. I mean, Jane, you must mm. be appalled at this as well. It's ridiculous, actually, the idea that sort of, you know, in, in other walks of life and other jobs, that you can you have a baby, you go on maternity leave, and this is your chance to be at home with your baby to, you know, to th- that special bond in the first few weeks. And actually that, that MPs have, you know, they're exceptionalists 
on on lots of things, but on this, it's ridiculous. And actually, you're right. There's sort of to encourage more women into politics. It needs to be. It needs to look as if it's like the normal, the rest of society. And actually, I think it's you know, Andrea Ledson was in the Commons yesterday saying, you know, we are going to change the rules on this. We are going to have a debate, but but it's not going to be till September. And people were saying to her, can't we have this debate tomorrow? You know, we've got these extra days actually that we you know we thought we weren't going to have, and now we have got back. Let's sort this out now. You don't need legislation on this. It just needs to be a standing order, I believe, to yeah. change the. The rules, and this is ludicrous. But the other aspect is actually that Theresa May, inadvertently or not, misled the House of Commons yesterday by telling Harriet Harman in a question about baby leave that this was done in error. Andrea Leadsom then spoke, had there was a debate about this, and she told MPs that this was done in error. Now either they have both been misled by the Chief Whip, in which case he needs to resign, or they have misled the House of Commons themselves. And there's really serious questions, I think, for both for for those three. MPs on this. Well, if it turns out that the Prime Minister has indeed misled the House over something like this, then I think we could be in quite serious territory. Well, look, I think my final villain of the week, just to sum up, um, given the rather depressing conversation we've had about all political parties, is politics in general. I think the country looked um, at politics, particularly this week, but it's been increasingly so with just a huge amount of absolute dismay. You know, whatever your views on Brexit are, it's a complete mess. Lots of work hasn't been done. We can't seem to sort of come together and and, and and work together. You know, every single political party has covered themselves in shame. Ian Paisley Jr. has just been suspended. He's um, from the DUP. He's been suspended for um, allegedly um, getting an all expenses holiday and then basically a holiday for voting in the right direction for the Sri Lankan government. Vince Cable, Tim Farron, the Liberal Democrats' literal only raison d'etre right now is to stop Brexit. There was a crucial set of votes and they were nowhere to be seen. I mean, you really do look at politics right now and just think, what a mess. And and, and I think this is people, I mean, the, the word politically homeless has come up a couple of times in this podcast. And I think an increasing number of people are feeling politically homeless but also pretty politically dismayed at what they at what they look at um just very very quick thoughts on you two from from that on that yeah and actually i mean tom was talking earlier about the competence of robots but it's the competence of politicians that we need especially well, we do have when... a robot in charge yeah. <laughs> well especially when there's such a serious issue at stake as brexit you know this is the entire future of the country hangs on mps being competent enough to make sure that they're making the right laws, that, they're, that they're, everything's going on. They're about to go on the summer recess, which is just, I know that that's what, you know, it's not a holiday, I know they're doing hard work, but actually shouldn't there be, in the months before Brexit, a, a sort of emergency sitting where they're basically I, I agree. sitting I through agree. the summer to get this sorted out? Because by October, we're supposed to have a deal presented in Brussels and it's r- ludicrous. Tom, do you think we have a class of incompetent politicians right now? Well, it's uh, the specific thing that really bothers me is uh, the, the incompetence is staggering. It's the total detachment from the sort of sense of an objective reality. You know, that um, the Boris Johnson just feels he can say repeatedly mm. things that are just not true and are demonstrably not true. Like the stuff about the, um, the female cyclists that he was trying to protect with lorries from the European Union, which was, by the way, a European Union piece of legislation that the, the government, the British government objected to. And he can, you know, say, oh, you know the pound sword. So- the pound yeah. sword after, the, mm. uh, after her Lancaster house. Oh, no, it didn't. It went down by a cent and then it came back up to exactly where it was. You know, mm. the, it's, and it's, I, the, Barack Obama, Barack Obama was... Um, giving a speech for the Nelson Mandela's 100th 
birthday uh, would, would, would have been Nelson Mandela's 100th birthday. And, you know, just it was like hearing his voice. It was like um, when you phone up your ex just to listen to the last <laughs> phone message. You're like, you know, so I just want to hear your voice one more time. Tom, I think you reveal too much. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, he... Um, he said, you know, back in back in the day when a politician, you know, politicians always lied, but when they used to lie and they got caught in lying, they say, oh man, you know, I've been caught out. Just carry on now. Well, uh, like, it's just embarrassing. It's embarrassing, and uh, he, a lack of shame is now the most important thing in politics. It seems. Mm. Well, on that cheery note, so we've really covered it all. We're all either going to be so fat and unhealthy we're going to die or we're going to get wiped out by um, the robots. And it might be for the best because we live in a time of political integrity where there literally is no integrity. So um, thank you so much to my brilliant guests, uh, Jane Merrick and Tom Shivers. Um, you can read Tom's piece on the Unheard website and do look out for his forthcoming book, The Rationalists, The Geeks, who want to save the world. Uh, you've been listening to the Unheard Weekly Podcast. I'm Aisha Hazarika. Do join me again next week. 